Remembering the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Sydney's remarkable, but it was a, I think it's remembered as a joyous occasion. Um, I think it's recognised that we've done good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula. The Sydney Olympics were coming to a close at this time 20 years ago, the first Southern Hemisphere Olympics since Melbourne in 1956. From opening ceremony in Sydney on to the end of the Paralympics, Sydney regarded as one of the best ever hosts. IOC President Juan Antonio Samaranch proclaimed so in his remarks at the October 1 closing ceremony, his last as IOC President. With 10,600 athletes from 199 nations, Sydney was also the biggest Olympics up to that point. Hundreds of thousands of spectators filled the Olympic Park at Homebush Bay in western Sydney across the 17 days of the Games. There were a few glitches with these Olympics, the result perhaps of close coordination between public authorities and the organizing committee. Now that's not to say there weren't issues leading up to the Olympics, controversies over tickets for example, and whether a United States marching band of high school musicians should be allowed to play at opening ceremonies. Nothing, however, could derail these first games of the new millennium. One of the key players in Sydney joins us for a look back at the games, John Coates, Australian Olympic Committee President. It was a title he held 20 years ago as well. He was also Vice President of SOCOG, as the organizing committee was acronymed. Since then, John Coates has become an IOC member and is also President of the Court of Arbitration for Sport. He remains in the spotlight of the Olympics as the chair of the IOC Coordination Commission for Tokyo, a post that has come with a new set of challenges now that the Games have been postponed one year due to the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to Around the Rings Radio, John Coates. My real pleasure, Ed. Well, how's it going 20 years after the Sydney Olympics? You had a big party a couple of weeks ago. Well, we, it's continued. The, there's been um, daily coverage matching what particular day it was of the Olympics. Um, so today is day 15, and the media here has been tremendous in uh, reminding us of what happened on each particular day. So we're, um, as I said, day 15 today. Uh, a lot of memories. Um, we relit the cauldron, you may have seen, Unfortunately, weren't able to bring Kathy up to Sydney, but she delivered a message and she selected a young Indigenous athlete to, to light the cauldron. And similarly, Louise Sauvage um, selected a, a Paralympic athlete to light the cauldron um, in a nice ceremony we had had out at um, Olympic Park. That was really good. We had um, uh, all the old and bold from the organising committee, the big committee, the government. Uh, people who sometimes didn't talk together were very happy together on this day. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what kind of crowd are you able to put together for a 20th anniversary? A, yeah, we had a function just with 50 people. And um, then we had uh, another function down in the park where the cauldron is. And again, there was uh, distancing there and maybe there was a couple of hundred people there. Um, unfortunately, Including the volunteers. They yes. were all there. It, it was really, and it reminded us what an important part they played. Do the do the volunteers who still fit into their uniforms get a special <laughs> accommodation? 
<laughs> they still wear those uniforms and you, you actually see them around the shops. You know, there was a brand called Bonds and you, um, I see it and I, I, I know immediately where that where I've last seen that person or that suit. Um, so what, what kind of regard do the Sydney Olympics have? You know, I'm coming, coming to you from Atlanta where we're about to go through the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta Olympics. And one thing I've discovered, there's generations of Atlantans for whom the Olympics, you know, didn't happen. They're too young to remember uh, what the what the games were all about. What's what's the memory like in Sydney? The memory is very strong and very positive. Um, yes, there of course there were people who weren't born at that time, but this served a very good purpose of educating them on the role that Kathy Freeman played. Um, in terms of reconciliation, all those matters. Um, it uh, gave them an opportunity to learn a bit of Olympic history. Um, Kathy and her, herself, um, there was a documentary done on her, which was just brilliant, called Freeman. And, um, uh, you know, I gave them some background and she rang me afterwards and said, you know, what do you think? And whatever, we had a good chat. And she said, I didn't understand um, the significance of all of this at the time, and 20 years after, I'm very pleased that this is now being, um, uh, we've, we've got the opportunity to um, uh, document this in this way. They, they, um, there's a now a way of recording digital, digitally or with DNA all the footage that you have and uh, of the games, and on the 25th, the night she won the 400 metres, they featured that race and her on the sales of the Sydney Opera House in a most spectacular way. So even for Cathy, I think um, the, uh, the significance of what she did um, probably means more now than it meant 20 years ago. And I would say that since Sydney, and maybe even before Sydney, there's seldom been a, a final torchbearer for the torch relay that, to carry as much... Uh, symbolism and as much uh you know value as much um you know na- you know national pride as 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 Kathy Freeman did carrying that holding that torch in the some, somewhat halting final minutes of the uh, of the of the relay but uh you know subsequent games it's I don't remember who the person was who lit the cauldron yeah um she she made a difference Muhammad Ali was, of course, very significant, um, and um, uh, but the um, she was significant, and um, the Australian Olympic Committee um, in 2015, after after the games, we we did a lot of work with Indigenous communities, um, taking Olympians out into them, um, working with the government to use teaching Olympic stories and values as a means of getting young kids to school. But in 2015, um, I'd been sitting in London, as you do, reading a newspaper, of a local paper there, and I read of our own Prime Minister going and living, uh, Abbott, Tony Abbott, living in um, Arnhem Land, Indigenous land. And um, I was quite touched by it and um, realised we had a lot to do. And so the Australian Olympic Committee in 2015 amended its constitution to recognise Australia's first people and to give ourselves a purpose also 
of um, playing a role in reconciliation through sport. Now, our governments haven't been able to amend the constitution to do that yet, um, and I don't know too many other bodies that have. But um, we've followed through on that. We now have an Indigenous Advisory Committee, uh, which works closely alongside our Athletes Commission. And um, when our Athletes Commission were coming to um, uh, survey our Olympians on Black Lives Matters, on freedom of expression, all of those things, they spent a lot of time with that group as well. And um, they've really concluded that... Um, uh, they've, they've got work to do going forward um, as a committee of the AOC in um, uh, playing a role in, in a very active role in reconciliation through sport. And I'm very pleased about this. And, uh, and I guess uh, sort of a bottom line from that endeavor would be what about elite athletes in Australia who are from the First Nations, who are Aboriginal? That's what this committee comprises all of them. Um, Patrick Johnson was a sprinter, is the chair. Paddy Mills, who plays basketball in America, uh, he sent tremendous stuff. He, he, um, he attributes, um, you know, part of why he's what he is to watching Kathy Freeman and saying, I want to emulate that. Um, now, our, our, our Indigenous athletes who have become Olympians, and there are 52 of them, not enough, but they understand um, and want to play a role in um, uh, giving similar opportunities for many more Indigenous athletes. Well, dialing back to Sydney 2000, and in, in the end, it seemed to go go pretty well. She'll be right, as they say <laughs> in, in Australia. Um, what do you think made made Sydney go so smoothly? The preparation was very good. You know, we had our hiccups with um, American marching bands. We had our hiccups with um, getting a bit greedy and trying to sell some tickets to uh, wealthy club members in Sydney and um, when we were desperate for money. Um, but the preparation was very good. And the, um, the government did a very good job. I think when Michael Knight stepped in and took over the presidency, we were... Um, hand in glove with the government, we uh, all of the construction was um, phased over a period of four or five years leading into the games. So there, there was never a, a threat of um, uh, labour activity or any demands that would prejudice the construction of anything. We had some problems when the game started on transport. You might recall um, drivers coming from interstate not knowing where to go. That was quickly fixed. Uh, so the, we had a very good organising committee. We had, dare me say, um, a very good sports commission, which um, I, we hived off and left to myself and the sporting people to run the, that side of the games. Um, Olympic Coordination Authority, Olympic Transport Authority, um, good leadership. And um, and I think the essence was we st the, the the starting point in everything we did was the athlete. And, you know, that's what I emphasised in my early meetings with the Tokyo folk. You get the village right for the athletes. You get the food right for the athletes. You then work from there to get them to their venues um, on time. Um, the rest follows. The um, If you've done it then for the athletes, you can then do it for the other participants in the games and um all of those things. 
and um, and then you can add all of the refinements. But um, it starts in getting it right for the athletes, and uh, we did that. How important is the government um, involvement in in, a, in an Olympic Games? You, you're seeing it in particular in in Tokyo. Uh, yeah, in this, in this case here, it was um, something that I was totally opposed to to start with. You know, I, I was um, I still am. <laughs> Um, a, a very strong custodian of the Olympic Committee here, being independent of government. But we started with an organising committee and with um, corporate, some very fine corporate people as leaders. But at the end of the day, um, it became very clear, and, and both um, President Samaranch and I <laughs> reached the conclusion at the same time that if you, um, it's better to be. Um, with working more closely with the government. Um, the government, if, if the government provides the president of an organising committee, then he's he's got the government behind him. He's got the government's reputation to think of. I was uh, very naughty at one Australian Olympic Committee annual meeting when um, I invited Michael Knight after he was appointed to say a few words. And you know, Michael's six foot six. And um, he came, he approached the podium and as he was walking up the stairs, I put my hands around his neck <laughs> and I just said, Michael, don't you ever forget that you're running this for us. And, um, and um, you know, we had our troubled history, but um, in the end we worked very, very closely together. And so I am a believer um, that uh, you've got to have um, government um, closely with you. Um, Sebastian Coe was um, virtually government, of course, at the time, and he, he carried the British government with him. Um, the uh, and in and Mori was um, uh, Mori has been quite a spectacular um, president of this organising committee for Tokyo, former prime minister, uh, mentor of um, Prime Minister Abe, uh, similar um, uh, regard from Prime Minister Sugar, as I understand, and um, uh, you've got to have someone who can pick up the phone to government um, and and get something done. Um, without getting bogged down through the bureaucrats. What about the attitude of Australia toward the Olympics? I think that that created a, a really special atmosphere in Sydney during the Games because wh wherever I went in Australia, there there was a, seemed to be a real patriotic connection to the to the Olympics that the people felt. Well, it, it dates back to uh, 1956 Olympic Games. You know the friendly games. Um, uh, different games in those days, but we produced uh, in those days such wonderful champions as Betty Cuthbert and people like that, um, and then in 60, Herb Elliott and all of those. They're part of Australian um, uh, history, not just sporting history, and um, our, um, the Australian public um, idolises our, um, our Olympians, and I think... Um, that uh, continued through to, to Sydney and uh, then we picked up a, a new generation of heroes. The legacy of Sydney. Um, we, 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 we often regard the legacy of an Olympics in, in, in fiscal proportions. Uh, in your case, uh, the creation of the Sydney Olympic Park at Homebush Bay was, I guess, the, the biggest, uh, biggest physical legacy of these games. And it's still... I hear trying to make its way, find its way 
you know, there's good days, you know, good yeah. sides to it. And there's still much to be done in the way of development, bringing it to life seven days a week throughout the year. It has something like um, 12 million visitors a year. Um, and there's a lot of activities out there. A lot of sporting championships are conducted there. Big games at the, at the Olympic Stadium. Um, we've got uh, very good swimming there. Um, tennis is in, in need of an upgrade and a few things like that. There's a lot of indoor centres. Um, a lot of um, residential and commercial developments gone there. And you've got a population which is um, there during the week, nine to five, and um, it goes a bit quiet at the weekend. And uh, so they've got to work on that. Um, but it's 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 work in progress. It's um, these are things the government understands, and um, it's a it's a community. Um, an important thing that is happening is that there'll be a rail link going through there, connecting uh, the largest city west of there, Parramatta. Um, through to the city. Um, at the time, we didn't have the money for anything more than just a loop rail, if you recall. And um, uh, it was always the case that um, it needed to have a through railway line or a metro of some sort. Um, and I think that's going to make a big difference. It's still four or five years away, but that's the plan. Any other physical legacies of Sydney that, you know, are being being used today that are still important for sport or for daily life in New South Wales? Well, my own sport, the um, International Regatta Centre out at Penrith, uh, is used every second week by schoolboy and club rowers and, um, and canoeists. We've got a slalom centre out there. The equestrian is still well used. It's the principal equestrian venue in Australia. The shooting's well used. Um, the... The velodrome at Bankstown needs a revamp. Um, and um, the we had a lot of events in the convention centre in Sydney. That's been knocked down. It was um, past used by date when it comes to exhibitions and conventions and uh, the demands of uh, the IT demands of this world. And there's a new convention centre there. So that was, um, that was using an existing venue and um, it's been upgraded. But... Uh, and there's no the beach volleyball venue went down afterwards. That <laughs> remember all the trouble we had to get permission to do that on Bondi Beach. On Bondi Beach, yes. And then, and then afterwards they're saying, but couldn't you have left the flagpoles behind afterwards? <laughs> and um, that was a venue for ten thousand people, and um, the uh, it didn't cause any permanent damage. But um, we had some very good venues, and we didn't spend a lot of money. The um, well, the other thing is we the principal commitment I got from the government when we made this our bid and it was the third bid was I don't want to lose this bid and then find we've got nothing to show for it and so as part of an endorsement contract we had the government agreed to build the international swimming pool um, and to build the what became the two warm up tracks for the athletics uh, regardless of whether we won and so they had to start that and they they completed that and um uh, they are both are them very very well used legacies and how about the uh as it was known then stadium australia the olympic stadium anzac stadium uh yeah it's, it's been 20 years and is it subject to any renovation yeah, no, they, plans yeah there, there have been plans but the um uh i think 
um, there was a view that we didn't need another uh, circular stadium. Uh, we had the Sydney Cricket Ground um, and that there was a proposal to move it back to a, within the original shell, back to a, um, a rectangular field, which would get more use in Australia uh, with the rugby and rugby codes. But um, they didn't do that. They went with a new 40,000 stadium next to the, um, for football, rectangular, next to the Sydney Cricket Ground. And um, so it's, um, it's as is, as was, the, the now known as ANZ, uh, but still it, it's, uh, it regularly for come finals times uh, gets crowds. We have 70,000 people there. It's, uh, and it has, um, the, they took the ends off. It's, it's maximum is about 80,000 people. It's well used. The um, <laughs> legacy, has it extended into, how has it extended into sport? Um, you had your, your, yeah. your best showing at the Sydney Olympics. Is it 68 or 58? 58. 58. No, 58, and we'd come from four in Montreal to um, uh, we were eight in um, 80, 14 in Seoul after the establishment of the Australian Institute of Sport, 27 in Barcelona, uh, 46 in Atlanta, and then to 58. So we were going up 50% at a time once we got serious about sport. And we held that and got um, 46 medals in uh Athens, um, but then uh, there was no further significant injections of money to keep pace with particularly Great Britain, uh, France, Germany, um, who are sort of our competitors. And uh, we, we have slipped. And um, uh, the government's conscious that uh, we do need another um, uh, stimulus, dare I say, games, um, to focus again on um, uh, providing support for our high performance and community athletes all the way through pathway athletes and whatever. Well, being a host country does give you the opportunity to you know put on peak performances. Uh, I'm sure yeah. the Japanese Olympic Committee is expecting uh, uh, record numbers out of out of their athletes uh, next year. Well, you. you it, <laughs> President Samaranch said to me, John, uh, your games won't be judged on whether you have a surplus or a deficit. They won't be judged on how many tourists come. They'll be judged by the home public on how many medals you win. And um, um, that became our objective. Um, let me say after that, the uh, in more recent times, um, in my own mind and those of my colleagues on the AOC, uh, it's equally important for us to make sure that we're providing an opportunity for our athletes in every one of the Olympic sports um, to, to get to an Olympic Games and that we're providing um, support uh, across, across all the Olympic sports. So uh, I'm very pleased that going into Tokyo, I think we will qualify in um, uh, every team sport except um, handball um, and the indoor volleyball will be there in the beach. Um, we'll qualify a team of 470, 480 athletes and we'll be, again, the, the third largest team um, in Tokyo, no doubt about that. And that's, that's what gives um, – that's the motivation of the Australian Olympic Committee these days. 
What kind of difficulties are you encountering preparing the team in the shadow of the of the pandemic with the restrictions and quarantines in place? How how is that affecting training for the Olympics yeah, we, in Australia? Um, ours is a complex country, a big country, and we've had not only external border restrictions but restrictions between states, and um, they still exist. They're slowly being eased up. Um, <clears throat> many of the athletes, though, had um, uh, moved to uh, concentrate with other athletes in a particular state before all this had happened. Um, but uh, we're not fully there yet. We've got uh, particularly uh, restrictions from in and out of Victoria. Um, and uh, But I, I think we're in pretty good shape now in, in the... Uh, in the non-Olympic sports of rugby league and AFL, we're going into finals week now. Um, the AFL, Australian football, um, they move all of their events to Queensland and all of the teams um, a couple of weeks ago, a few months ago. And similarly, New South Rugby League has been focused in Sydney and Brisbane. And um, uh, they will conduct games with... Um, talking of a crowd of 50,000 people being allowed in ANZ Stadium for the grand final of Rugby League. How about, yeah, how about international travel? Any, there's okay. No, yeah. yeah. No, well, we've, um, we've got athletes overseas. Some live there, Richie Port. Uh, you know, he he um, got a podium finish in the Tour de France. But we've got a group of uh, middle-distance runners who've been doing very well in Diamond League and um, breaking a lot of Australian records. So they're overseas. We've got some individual um, football, soccer players uh, based in the European and English leagues, men and women. <coughs> the, um, so some, <coughs> some are overseas, uh, but it's, um, that's going to obviously be a problem. We think that a movement between Australia and New Zealand is freeing up and um, we're planning on uh, competitions in sports where we're both strong um, over the next 10 months. Um, and I think that's going to be very, will be very helpful. And um, there's five or six sports where we're, we're both strong and that will help. Um, things like it was planned that the US women's water polo team would come out here. So I don't think that's happening. I'm, I hope it might happen. Um, some of you know in the team sports is very important leading into a game is to get that one-on-one -on -one competition um, even with uh, teams that will be your competitors so um, with the rest of the world's in the same position although um, you know we we saw a successful Tour de France um, you know I'm from rowing well the European rowing championships um, are not this weekend the next weekend They've attracted 31 nations going to Poznan, um, with some 570 top European rowers. So the sports are working it out and um, uh, learning to um, live um, in a post-corona world and to continue to compete in a post-corona world. Yeah, how important is it? You, of course, you're concerned about the uh, your, your your team in Australia, but putting on your hat is uh, the coordination commission chair for Tokyo. You've also got to be watching the watching the world as well to see, you know, how how teams are are traveling, competing, and uh, able to you know interact and uh, 
isn't that all part of the success of or the ability to have the Tokyo Olympics next year? Absolutely. There's 206 National Olympic Committees and a refugee team we want to get there. And um, so, uh, you know, the pleasingly, the, uh, we've had an all-partners uh, task force um, established by the organising committee, IOC and WHO, working on this since February and guiding us. But um, more recently, the Japanese government, the Tokyo Municipal Government and the organising committee have thrown together and thrown resources at what they call a, um, a COVID-19 council and uh, their support is, is critical and um, it's early days now. We've, we'd identified and they'd identified uh, the different scenarios that could take place. Uh, we don't know where we're going to be in 10 months, but um, we're basically um, working off the, well, the, the base case is that um, learning to live with um, COVID-19 and so uh, this council in Japan, and we're involved in it, it's, it came up, uh, it's had two meetings now, very um, well represented um, by the Japanese government and health authorities. And it's got, as I said, a lot of resources. And they're, they're coming up now with the countermeasures um, to suit various scenarios. And when we get closer to the event, we'll work out what needs to be done. But pleasingly, on the point of, countries coming here, they did announce last week on the eve of our coordination commission that uh, they will go ahead um, and the, the games, they'll require a, um, a COVID-19 pre-embarkation test. They'll do a test when they arrive. This is all predicated on rapid testing and that, that um, science is improving. And then, um, but on that basis, you clear those two hurdles you don't have to go into isolation when you or quarantine when you get to Japan. Now there'd be much more to be built around all this: uh, regular testing at the village, regular testing at the the venues we're dealing at this stage with the athletes. Um, when we move, we we um, we have these scenarios covered. Then we'll move to the other participants in the games. But um, uh, it's all about um, these games as sport will need to um, be fit for a post-corona world, and that's what we're trying to emphasise and be prepared for. And, and you will have seen that um, President um, Abe, when he was president, then the new Prime, uh, Prime Minister, the new Prime Minister, Shuga, came out and made a strong declaration that we'll deliver the Games to the United Nations last week. President Mori continues to say we're going to do this. Let me say, in every case predicated first and foremost on it being safe, uh, there's no avoiding that. Uh, but um, uh, they, uh, uh, their leadership, um, are committed to delivering the games. Um, and John Coates is committed too. You, you sound very confident that uh, things will be able to be managed so that the games can be held next July. Yes, I am. I am. Um, I'm uh, uh, confident um, and... Um, I mean, you know, I'm I'm seeing the work that's being done by by our Japanese partners. Uh, I know what's being done on the IOC side with WHO, uh, and um, from all of the parties, there is a commitment to delivering these games. Uh, in my case, I put it that um, 
uh, we owe it to uh, these athletes who were preparing for the Games. Um, we don't want there to be a generation of athletes who miss out in the Olympics. And if that means delivering the Games um, in a fit for purpose, uh, you know, fit for a, a corona world, we'll do it. And I'm confident we can. And do you think that will mean fewer people who are not athletes, fewer officials, maybe fewer media credentialed for the Games, for example? Too early to call. Absolutely too early to call. And um, the uh, uh, we certainly hope that um, we'll have full participation in all of those elements uh, by Games time. There are some indications that some of the stakeholder groups um, may not be bringing as many um support staff in the case of broadcasters um actually media there's a the media demand's gone up they um more media want accreditations we understand but um we don't know what's around the corner in those areas we don't know whether social distancing will be required um so but and, and we don't governments don't know what's around the corner you know, the Australian government can't tell you when all of the uh, its border restrictions are going to be li lifted internally. We want to do it, and, um, gee, I'm so glad we're doing it in Japan, Ed, without casting any aspersions on anyone else. These people are so well organised, um, our Japanese friends, uh, so well prepared, and um, they, they're just throwing every resource at it if, um, to make sure it happens. Are there any lessons from your experience in Sydney that you've been able to apply to the Tokyo experience? Uh, look, every um, I, th I think I essentially was from the day one, I focused on the athletes. Um, we have these, we just finished our 10th Coordination Commission meeting. We have project review meetings in between. And um, the, uh, of course, when everything, everything comes up, I say, have you thought of this? Have you done this? Have you done that? Um, um, the, um, you're allowed to do that when you get to my age. Um, but the, um, uh, it all comes back to you. And, um, but what doesn't come back to you is what's new this time, and that's running at postponed games. And, again, just, you know, the enormity of what they had to do in terms of going and renewing the uh, 42 venues in the Olympic Village for the Games one year later, the enormity of that which meant that we could then have um, the same program of events. Uh, we could send uh, roll the tickets over. That was an amazing um, exercise by the Japanese, and they did it in three months, something like that, from when uh, Prime Minister Abe and uh, President Bach agreed on the postponement. So uh, I, um, I watch it. I get, we get the reports on it, but I'm, um, we, are, we at the IOC are so very grateful and so very impressed by what they've done. You uh, have not been to Japan since I think March. Might have been your your, your last visit there. It was um, February. Yeah. When do you think you'll be able to go back to Japan for a next in-person visit? Um, I don't think it'll be this year um, because of um, you know the restrictions when you come back to Australia, um, but others from Lausanne will start to go there and um, I'm very keen to get back there as soon as possible. 
And, and again, dialing back here to Sydney 20 years ago, when you think of that time, uh, you know, the, the, the joys, the highs, the lows, uh, what do you remember best? What, what, do you, what do you think will be Sydney's mark in the annals of the Olympic Games? Yeah, Sydney's mark will be, as a, I think it's remembered as a joyous occasion. Um, I think it's recognised that we've done good. The um, uh, when we had the when we won in Monte Carlo, we had a press conference and they asked our then Prime Minister Paul Keating, "What does this mean?" He said, "This is an opportunity for Australia and Australians to show we can hack it in the big time, uh, hack it, and not grant." And what he he meant there it was an opportunity for Australia to Australians to gain self-confidence in themselves about running the world. If they could run the world's biggest event, then they would have self-confidence in getting out there in trade and business and whatever. And then, um, and it was also then going to be a lesson to the rest of the world that we could do this. And I think we achieved that. You know, for, for a long time afterwards, I'd have um, Prime Minister Howard saying to me, John, I was at this international meeting of leaders and they still talk about the Sydney Olympic Games and their their, um, their fond memories of that. So I think it, it was the reputation that we derived from it as a nation, the confidence that we gained as a, as a people. Um, <clears throat> and then in sport, I think it, it's also served us well because we're a good host and, um, you know, we took our turn in hosting a Games and, now, and then... Um, you know, we've been well received, we were always well received, but um, I think the international sporting community um, continues to regard us well and listen to us as a result of what we did in Sydney. And is there an opportunity for Queensland to bid for the Olympic Games? There was a lot of talk about that last year, but that's all sort of settled down as we deal with the <laughs> coronavirus and, and, and other issues. What are the prospects for another Olympics down under? Brisbane's bidding. Brisbane and southeast Queensland. It's been through the um, the approval of the southeast Queensland Council of Mayors. It uh, was started off then with um, with that. Uh, the Prime Minister has committed. Morrison has committed um, the uh, support of the government, and that the government wants the games. And then last December, the Queensland Cabinet signed off on the value proposition assessment. All of those documents are with the IOC. Um, we, uh, I took the call, made the call as deputy leader, what they call the Olympic um, Candidature Leadership Group, that we should um, uh, take a pause on any activities in Australia while our two governments and the, and the local council, uh, the city council, uh, focus on um, what they need to do uh, to overcome COVID. Um, that hasn't stopped us internationally. Um, we have, uh, over the last six months, and you can check with the international federations, we've been running our games, um, our preferred games master plan past each of the international federations in meetings, individual meetings, um, and we've been doing, and we've been uh, done the same with the International Paralympic Committee. And... We are poised to um, um, elevate the dialogue again with the IOC um, sooner than later. 
John Coates has been our guest on this edition of Around the Rings Radio, President of the Australian Olympic Committee, Vice President of the Sydney Olympics, as he reminisces over the 20 years since the Sydney Olympics were held, the first games of the new millennium, Sydney 2000. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula, your best source of news about the Olympics for more than 30 years now, aroundtherings.com.